This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon from Rand's Washington office, and welcome to this Policy Circle conference call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. Today we'll be discussing what it might take to ensure peace and stability in Iraq after defeating ISIS. These calls are one of the benefits of being a policy circle, RAND Next or Next Leaders member. We thank you for your support. So joining me today from our Pittsburgh office is Shelley Culbertson, a senior policy researcher at RAND. She's co-author of a new RAND Ventures report investigating the humanitarian and stabilization challenges in Iraq following the defeat of ISIS in Mosul last month. I'll begin by asking Shelley a few questions and then look forward to everyone else weighing in. Shelley, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, you appear to have had some foresight when you decided to write about the defeat of Mosul a year before the defeat of Mosul. How did that come about? About a year ago, by, by last March, um, most of the cities of Iraq that had been occupied by ISIS had already been retaken. So um, Ramadi, Fallujah, and Tikrit. And what remained was Mosul. And Mosul is Iraq's second largest city. It's its um, largest Sunni majority city. And the military operations were, um, the, the planning was underway for that. And at the time, the United <laughs> Nations was estimating that the military operations uh, would would displace 750,000 to a million people out of the city of Mosul. Those were really large numbers. And as um, we read about it, it looked like there was no plan for what happened the day after military victory. Um, there, most of the attention was focused on how to defeat ISIS, uh, not so much what comes next. So my colleague Linda Robinson and I uh, put together a proposal to try to think about um, what should happen to stabilize Mosul and get the estimated up to a million uh, displaced civilians back home after the battle. And so we did this study um, in advance and during the, the military operations. And the focus on Mosul, I suppose, because its fate was so critical to ultimately defeating ISIS. Is that a done deal now, the defeat of ISIS? ISIS at one point held about 30 percent of Iraq's territory, and now it has just about 7% remaining. So it looks like ISIS is uh, pretty well defeated militarily in in Iraq. Um, there are some remaining spots still, but but essentially the military victory is, is nearly complete. But what's concerning, though, is that um, ISIS is really... Um, um, it, ISIS grew out of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which, uh, as you may recall, had an insurgency around 2003. And the concern is that if ISIS is defeated today militarily, but conditions are not put in place to guarantee civilians a decent standard of living, stabilize circumstances, um, get displaced civilians back home, that, that really would set the stage for an ISIS 3.0. So while ISIS is, is – it's, it's fairly certain that ISIS is defeated currently, um, the idea is to try to prevent a resurgence of ISIS coming back. And, and that's, that's not a foregone conclusion. Uh, and so our study was really trying to look at what are the steps that need to be taken in order to stabilize um, the city and then prevent that from happening. We'll get to whether the steps are being taken, but why don't you start with what the steps are that you recommend? What should be done? 
Our study uh, tried to look at the situation holistically. Uh, so my colleague Linda Robinson and I were looking at these issues from different perspectives. I have done a lot of work on refugees as well as public service development in the Middle East, including in Iraq. And my colleague Linda has done a lot with security, policing, and, and special operations. So what we wanted to do was put together a, a multidisciplinary, holistic um, um, perspective so that policymakers could think about what needs to be done um, with all of those issues combined rather than in, in silos. So in particular, we looked at the humanitarian situation, we looked at security, we looked at um, what needs to happen to, to resume city life, and then um, what needs to happen in terms of governance and, and reconciliation. And we offered a set of uh, recommendations for over the, the coming year to address each of those major areas. That's a pretty big plate you're talking about there. Uh, maybe you could just pick one key insight from each of those areas uh, that you think really needs attention. Sure. From, from the humanitarian perspective, about 3.3 million Iraqis are still displaced, um, ma mainly living in camps that are not up to international camp standards because they were intended to be uh, temporary. So with these 3.3 million people still displaced, probably the, the most important thing that needs to happen from a humanitarian perspective is that Iraq needs a national plan to get these people home and then help them to stay home. Are they internally displaced or, or a mixture of uh, external and internal? Iraq's displaced are, the vast majority are internally displaced. That's different from Syria where there are a lot of refugees who cross the border. So there are some Iraqi refugees who have fled, but most of them are inside Iraq's borders. So just sticking with that one second, what's the one key thing that perhaps needs to be happening on the internally displaced refugees and, and internally displaced people in Iraq and what needs to be done for them? So at this point, there's there's no national Iraqi plan uh, to get them back home. And to get civilians back home requires uh, ensuring that there are stable conditions when they do get home. It, it looks at, uh, it requires transportation. It requires um, a range of things so that the civilians are not afraid to get home. Um, in the in the nearer term, um, these 3.3 million are largely in camps that were set up to be temporary. And as I had mentioned, the camps were not set up to international camp standards because of the speed of the conflict. So these people are living uh, mainly in, in tents. They don't have access to hot food. Most of the camps don't have 24-hour physical and mental health care. Um, and it's, it's very rough. Uh, it's a set of very rough conditions. And that, that's okay if people are going to be living in those conditions for a couple of months and then can return home. Those, uh, if, if people stay in those longer than that, that is certainly not sufficient. And so... Um, the first order of business for the humanitarian circumstances is really getting a plan to get these people out of the camps and get back home. And if they do need to stay in camps for a while uh, as their, their homes are being cleared, uh, then to find ways to upgrade the camps. Okay. And I cut you off. You were going to make a point on, on the military front. On the, on the security front, we found three main problems that need to be addressed. The first uh, is, is mine hazards. ISIS um, mined and booby-trapped um, whatever it could find, down to the level of pharmacies and baby cribs, with the intent to kill civilians and prevent civilians from being able to live in their homes. So public buildings, critical infrastructure, housing, farms, all of these places are mined. And there really hasn't been a survey to date that, that understands the full extent of it, except that in other 
cleared cities, um, the, the mining levels are really extensive. Iraq probably is the most mined place uh, in the world at this point. So there, 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 are, uh, there are efforts underway to do some critical demining, um, but they're not sufficient in comparison with the scale. So addressing the mine hazards that people can go home is one part of that. The next is, uh, with security, is looking at policing and hold forces. So um, the Iraqi government, based on, on, on RAND analysis, uh, estimates that in order to secure uh, the city of Mosul and not and, and to prevent ISIS from moving right back in after it's been cleared, it needs a hold force of 60,000 troops. Those troops are available, but there's a risk that they may be drawn off uh, to defeat ISIS elsewhere. So it's very important that they uh, that the 60,000 troops remain there, even if that means slowing down a little bit. At the same time, there are about 25,000 police that are needed to be able to prevent looting, reprisals, keep the peace, etc. And to date, only 13,000 have been hired and trained, and there are estimates that it would take about another 18 months to get the rest hired and trained. And that, that is, uh, the situation is urgent. So addressing the situation of the hold forces and the police training, really doubling um, the police training is, is our, our, our other major recommendation on the security front. So on both of those fronts, on the demining and on the the holding of Mosul and the policing of Mosul. It sounds like your assessment is there's awareness that these things need to be done, but is what needs to be done happening? In terms of mining, there's the beginning of that. Um, so the both of the United States and the United Nations have some pretty significant programs to do demining of critical infrastructure. So they're starting off by by moving in and trying to demine um, water facilities, power facilities, hospitals, schools, so forth. The, the general public infrastructure. So and and that's very risky work. The demining is risky, and these areas are not secure yet. So the deminers also face snipers and car bombs and so forth. So this is it's very difficult work. Uh, so that's underway, but. There, there's currently no plan and there are no resources to demine housing and fields and workplaces. And people cannot return if that doesn't happen. So there's awareness that, that, this, is, that, that this is going to be an issue, but the coordination of, of fixing that hasn't been done. And what that really requires is some increased donor resources, but then also increasing capacity to do that. So training more Iraqis who can have the capability to do this demining, because this will take several years to get done at least. And then in, in terms of um, the hold forces and, and, and the policing, um, there, there was awareness of the need for this, and there, there have been recent efforts to increase uh, the policing, in particular by the Canadians and the Italians who were members of, of, the, of the coalition, but the, the scale of it is still um, vastly insufficient in comparison with the needs. Do you get the impression that something's being done to ramp up the supply of, of help on that, on that score? No. So this is this is the point of our recommendation that um, th- these are acute needs that we are calling out for uh, that that need to be addressed urgently. And um, there are donor resources um, that are, have already been committed. A lot of a lot of this needs uh, additional leadership and coordination. And really, the, the United States government is probably the only entity that is in that has the comp- the convening authority to, to make some of these things happen, largely through its 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 diplomatic and coordination um, functions with other nations. Harry has emailed in with a question that seems. Uh Right on point here. He says the internal displacement necessarily involves the disruption of all ordinary business relationships, including the trade education of youth. In that context, what development steps are we assisting toward developing trade, business, professional education uh, for the currently displaced? 
That's that's a great question, and that's actually uh, the, the the third area of our, our, our report. So so there, there are people who've been currently displaced, and then then there's also the issue of you know how do you resume city life with all of those issues of, of trade and public services and businesses and and so forth. So for the for the currently displaced, one statistic that I find I think that really illustrates some of the problems is that of the 3.3 million people who are displaced, about a third of them are school aged children. Seventy percent of them have been out of school for a year or more, and then at, at least a million um, Iraqi school children have uh, been educated underneath um, ISIS's um, curriculum, which is really quite indoctrinating. They, it's, it's pretty shocking what they did with the curriculum. For example, they, they do math word problems with calculating the number of people that could be killed using suicide bombers um, and so forth. So it's and, and jihad education at, a, at age wow. six. I, yeah. So the currently displaced largely have been have been out of work. Their kids are out of school, and that has created huge burdens on nearby cities that have opened up their education and healthcare um, systems to them. It's put a lot of strains on hospitals. It's created a lot of competition for jobs. And I, I think, um, I, I, in, in addition to, to the problems, I like to talk about the things that are going right. And one of the things that I think is quite remarkable has been the generosity of neighboring host communities that have hosted all of these displaced millions. Um, it's, there certainly have been strains and tensions, but it's pretty remarkable that there have, have not been um, at its in significant numbers um, uh, problems of violence and so forth. And many Iraqis have opened their, their homes up and their schools and hospitals up to other people in need. So I, th- that area, I think, has been um, quite, quite remarkable. Okay, great. Shelley, just to get back to the the origin of this study, what brought it about? Uh, I, I gather that the the thing that's a bit unusual about it, and I presume was not being done elsewhere, is that it's multidisciplinary. You, you mentioned that it integrates these different areas: humanitarian, security, development, etc. So, uh, what brought it about, and is it is it having some intended effect? What brought it about? Um, it looked like there was an unmet need, and even press coverage a year ago about Mosul, uh, there were a, a number of commentaries and op-eds just by by um, former officials who'd been involved in, in Iraq, really lamenting the the need for a day after a Mosul plan that there that there was none, and the the, the UN estimates of of a million people displaced by the battle in Mosul looked like this was calling out for um, um, some some forward thinking. And and on a personal level, um, I have been involved with Iraq since 2010. Rand has had um, a number of uh, studies with the Kurdistan Regional Government of Iraq to help them improve their public sector uh, performance. And we've had, and my area of work on that was working with the Kurdistan Regional Government on an education plan. Um, and so I had been working in, in Iraq, actually I've had 20 trips to Iraq um, for, for a number of years, and where I was working was really just 20, 20 miles from, uh, from Nineveh province where, where Mosul is. So uh, for me personally, it was, it was hitting home. And then, and then second, I've, I've worked on a number of studies in the past uh, two or three years on the Syrian refugee crisis. And so looking at the how uh, pu- public sector um, services should be managing refugees and helping them with education jobs and, and humanitarian assistance. And so given this background and my colleague Linda's background with, with security and policing, we thought, you know, we could stick our heads together and try to think about um, um, 
what would be needed from these various perspectives. So so that was really how the, the, the study came about. And the funding of it. Yes. And the, the funding of it was funded internally through RAND Ventures. So RAND has um, internal funding that it can use to invest in um, forward thinking or, or in innovative studies, um, in particular ones where, where we, we think it might be hard to find, um, find outside funding. And given that there wasn't a plan and that there, it didn't really seem politically that there was much of an appetite to be, to be looking at these issues about a year ago, um, we were able to get some internal RAND funding from, from RAND donors and um, uh, to be able to, to, to consider these issues looking forward. A lot's changed in the last year. Is there more political uh, appetite now? I think there has. So since, since our report has come out, we have, uh, we've briefed uh, staff at the National Security Council and the State Department, uh, Department of Defense, uh, USAID. Um, and when we were doing the study, we interviewed about 50 stakeholders who have been the leaders of the, uh, the Mosul response, ranging from U.S. government aid, diplomatic and military officials, to other coalition officials, United Nations officials, um, Iraqi government, and and so forth. And so I think also the process of doing the research and having these conversations with the people who are responsible for for leading this response um, was was very helpful. And then we've also provided our report at the end um, back back to these to these individuals. You mentioned uh, obviously the Americans and the Iraqis are major players here. You mentioned the. Italians. Who are other major actors allied with Iraq who need to be or maybe are engaged on these issues? So the, the Iraqi government, first and foremost, is responsible. The, the Iraqi government, uh, for all its flaws, is still a functioning government. And I, and I think another area uh, where credit uh, and, and recognition needs to be given is, is that the, it's, it's this battle has been won by the Iraqis fighting on the ground. There have been there's been U.S. and and coalition support through through airstrikes, um, intel, and training. But it really is the Iraqis who who have have done this. Um, and they've also done a fair amount of management of the, of the humanitarian response as well. So um, it's it's important to recognize that yes, while they're a country in crisis, they are still uh, uh, able to be actors in in this. And and uh, it's it's up to the international community to provide. Uh, additional support on that. I think the, the next major player is the United Nations, which has been organizing the, the, the humanitarian response and has been uh, doing a lot of work in helping the displaced, uh, both in cities and in the, the, the camps that have been there. Um, the United Nations also, uh, it, the aid mission to Iraq, has been involved in working behind the scenes to try to come up with a political settlement. That's never really gotten off the ground. One of our recommendations is for the UN system to work with the Iraqis to to uh, create a political settlement roadmap backed up by a group of friends uh, of friendly nations that include the United States and other coalition partners. Then there's the the coalition. Um, a, a lot of NATO partners are, are, are part of that. Um, some of the major players are, are you know, of course, UK and Germany. Um, and you know, Canada, Italy, and so forth, and also the Gulf countries. Um, within the coalition, the stabilization working group is chaired by is co-chaired by both Germany and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, one of our other recommendations really is to find ways um, um, politically to enable the, the the Gulf countries to contribute more financial resources. It's you know, certainly it's it's in their backyard, and um, we would recommend that they uh, uh, provide additional. Um, funding, whether in the form of grants or, or, or loans, for some of the infrastructure rebuilding that needs to 
to happen. So that's really an overview of the, the major players here. On that point about the Gulf countries, has the spat between many of the Gulf countries and Qatar, is that somehow spilling over into the ways in which Iraq is or is not assisted? I think that has been less of an issue in Iraq than than elsewhere. In Iraq, the, the, the major Gulf countries that have, have been involved or that are that, that coalition partners have been trying to get involved are really the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, um, and in particular in trying to get them involved in funding some additional infrastructure. And then also perhaps one of our, one of our recommendations is including them on um, on some Arabic language police training if, if they're able to do that. But but Qatar hasn't been a major player in, in that so far. So that, that has not been um, a, a significant issue to date. What about those who are not necessarily aligned with Iraq or allied interests? So I'm thinking particularly of Iran. Uh, how is Iran taking advantage, if it is, of the current situation? How are the Shia militias behaving? So uh, Iran certainly has an, an interest in um, creating um, an arc of influence and military strength between Tehran and Lebanon. Um, and that a strip of that goes through um, Iraq, of course. And so uh, Iran has been funding Shiite militia groups in Iraq. And that has been problematic um, in, in a number of ways. At the same time, um, the, the Iraqis also have come up with some some ways of managing that issue. So the popular mobilization forces, these Iranian Shiite-backed militia groups, were brought by law underneath the supervision of Iraqi security forces. And then during the fighting for Mosul and elsewhere, it was agreed that these Shiite militia forces would not enter the cities or be doing any of the hand-to-hand fighting because of the, the concerns about um, how that would seem to the, the largely Sunni residents here. And for the most part, they have abided by that. They're there are, of, of course, uh, a number of incidences that have been problems, uh, setting up a random checkpoints and so forth. But as one of the generals that we interviewed put it, um, the situation gets a C minus um, and not an not an F. So in many ways, that that issue has posed a large risk, but it's been managed and hasn't been as as, as much of a problem as has been anticipated. I would I would comment on that that at, at, at this point there is a general sense that from a number of people in Iraq that opinion of the U.S. have never been so high uh, with U.S. support and so forth. And so it's a key time for the U.S. to be able to exert its diplomatic and aid leadership uh, because there will be a vacuum and or it, the Iranians can fill it or the U.S. can fill that vacuum. And the doors appear to be open to uh, to the U.S. at this point. And, and again, that requires additional leadership in particular on the diplomatic and aid sides. Is Russia trying to fill that vacuum? Russia has not been as much of a player in Iraq as it has been in Syria. So certainly uh, you know, in, in Syria, Russia has, has its, its bases. It's been coordinating with the Assad regime and so forth. But but that has, has not been much of an issue or it's not of the same level as it is in, in, in Iraq. I think that there's a, a very there, there's a narrow window of about a year to address the issue of ISIS's influence. ISIS has been defeated for the most part militarily in Iraq. Its atrocities have been very much revealed. People who once supported it, or at least were fairly neutral, um, have have turned against it. Um, uh, even even hearing about the the attitudes of people in Mosul, they've they've very much turned against ISIS. ISIS was uh, using the population as, as human shields, harsh social environment, and, and so forth. And so th- I think that they have been socially defeated um, as well as militarily defeated. 
And yet, if circumstances are not put into place to deal with uh, the grievances of the people who are living there, that does create a vacuum for ISIS to come right back in, whether whether militarily or um, in uh, in some sort of a of a, of a Sunni um, resurgence in a couple of months or a couple of years. So I think that there's a very narrow window of a- addressing that, and and the the time is now to do that on a number of these fronts. Sounds like maybe this is a case where some some lessons have been learned that winning the the battle is one thing, but the war entails good governance. Ultimately, yeah. So I, I think on that front, there are two other areas of the of the study that I could mention related to good governance and um, and city life and so forth. And I think that also relates to the earlier question as well. And the first is getting the city back on track. So about three quarters of West Mosul, for example, has been reduced to rubble. Mosul has about a quarter of its hospital beds left. There's a lot of pent up need for health care. All five of its bridges have been destroyed. All of its water, sanitation, power uh, facilities have been either badly damaged or destroyed and there's sort of a patchwork of pipes that have been put in to try to provide a little bit of you know, water as well as bottled water to the population. So there's a lot of destruction that has, has happened in the city. And so th- there's, there's a lot that needs to happen in, in addressing um, many of these, these city life issues that include investing in infrastructure, enabling jobs to come back, doing rubble clearing. And in fact, some of the lessons from other cities uh, that have been liberated from Mosul that are, are that when surveys of people who have returned, uh, there are two main things that enable people to, to get home and return home. And, and the first is security, and the second is jobs. So creating the conditions so that city life can resume with its economy and, and jobs. And then there's some governance issues as well. Uh, we, we looked at governance both at a national level and at a, at, at a, at a local level. Um, locally, um, there are a lot of challenges within Nineveh province and open questions. So after ISIS and, and the, the, the problems among the various ethnic communities of Nineveh province. Um, A number of ethnic communities are are trying to to secede from Nineveh province, that they're not um, under control of, 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 of the Sunni majority there. So that, that's an open question. It's not clear if that's, what, that's going to happen, but that's, that's an open question there. Um, and then at a national level, um, Iraq had a, a passed a law in 2013 to decentralize a lot of public services uh, among eight ministries to the local governance and provinces. And the idea behind this was that providing autonomy to local areas would enable them to feel to improve their services uh, and feel more in, in control of their own areas and then provide a lot more social cohesion nationally. But imp- implementation of that has been very slow. Um, and so that, that's, that's an area that really needs to be addressed um, as well in the, in the near to medium term in governance. When you say implementation has been slow, is that another way of saying maybe that was a bit a bit too starry-eyed of a of a desire, and and that it maybe it's going to be impossible, or is it something that is a really good approach, and it's just going to take time? I think something in the middle. It's an approach that will that will likely take time. Um, Iraq and actually many countries in the Middle East have a, have a history of, of of centralized governance, and in many ways that has has been a factor in some of the, the discontent among the Sunnis, the Kurds, etc., um, in dealing with uh, in dealing with 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 Baghdad. And so th- there's a fair amount of work that has been done on that. Both USAID and World Bank have done a lot in support, um, working with the provinces to come up with plans, figuring out 
um, how this would be done, um, doing a lot of training, um, but little of that authority has actually been devolved. Uh, it may be challenging to devolve in a time of warfare when you know a lot of of um, public servants have, have been displaced themselves and there's some human capacity um, gaps. But this is, this is something that has, has been done in, in, in other countries and, and has um, been able to improve um, local public service delivery. So, but it is something that certainly takes time and, um, and, and dedicated effort to accomplish. We have a follow-up question from Harry. This is how we, we sometimes appear to look at the issue of anticipated return of interned populations into their original regions with a finish line approach, that once they are reinstalled near the original positions, somehow the job is done. The finish line approach carries uh, with it the previously encountered risk of in-game collapse. So he's asking, uh, might, might it not be worthwhile for us to implement expanded programs, including with seated equipment, in the camps for the reestablished uh, reestablishment of reciprocal commerce relationships, uh, and he gives an example. Uh, one illustration would be bargained for provision to a family with shoe repair background with basic and semi-portable shoe repair equipment. Now, uh, now that in the camps, everyone needs shoes. I think the center of that question is: is what is success when it comes to dealing with displaced population and? Um, and he raises a good point that getting people back home um, is not the finish line. That is perhaps the start of a, a number of steps that need to be taken. And it, in many cases, getting people back home to their original homes may not be an appropriate finish line. Uh, so among displaced people, um, human rights norms are that these people have a right to either return to their their from where they were displaced or to, to resettle in a, in a third location um, within their own within their own country and one of the challenges uh, facing the Noah province of which Mosul is the, the capital is that a lot of neighboring communities just don't trust each other they have mutually you hear the phrase com- competing narratives of, of, of victimization um, as many communities have have a lot of things to fear from from their neighbors and so um, some of them just simply don't want to return so it, it's really the finish line then is working with communities to come up with um, a sustainable long-term solution, whether that's in another location or um, back home. And then getting them back home is um, certainly no easy feat. Once they arrive home, there, ne- there, there needs to be security and policing. They need to feel safe. Um, there need to be supply chains in place to access food. I think this is one of the, the lessons learned from uh, Tikrit, Ramadi, and Fallujah was that after the grocery stores were wiped out, it took some capital grants to local stores so they could get their, their food supplies up and going again. Water and power need to be resumed. The World Bank is working on some of these issues. So there are a number of things that are required uh, to enable people to stay home once they get home and have a have a, a decent quality of life. I was just about to ask you about what particular rebuilding efforts uh, might be required. So you, you've you've handled a bit of that. You know, I guess what I'd like to hear, Shelley, is uh, especially given that you've spent so much time on the ground in the area. What does Iraq have going for itself that uh, gives you optimism? If if something does. I think Iraq has a lot going for it. Most of our report really focuses on the problems and challenges that need to be addressed and faced because I mean, that's those were our research questions. This is this is what's going wrong, and here are thoughts about how to fix it. But we also wanted to point out that Iraq has has a number of success stories that it can build upon currently. So 
I think the, the first of those is that it was Iraqi forces that defeated ISIS in these cases. This was not American boots on the ground. And, and, and that's a very important narrative for the Iraqi people, that Iraqis went and fought and lost their lives and sustained injuries um, to help other Iraqis. And that's, that's actually fairly huge. The next is that there have been a lot of efforts to minimize civilian casualties. Prime Minister Alabadi recommended across the cities that, that civilians stay in place when they could, and then the Iraqi military would do house-to-house uh, -house fighting, sustaining a lot more casualties than if they had uh, evacuated the cities initially and then just relied on air power. And there are definitely a lot of uh, cases where civilians have died. So that's certainly a significant number, someplace between 500 and 4,000 in, in Mosul from, from airstrikes. But th there has been a lot of effort to protect civilian life, and I think that's been recognized by a lot of the Iraqi people. Um, what, what has been another accomplishment is the delivery of aid. Um, there have been 5.3 million people displaced with the 3.3 remaining, and aid has been delivered to them. It hasn't always been smooth, but it has, has happened um, to quite an extent. And then Iraq has oil resources. It's got the finances to be able to invest in some of its reconstruction as, as well. So Iraq has a number of things going for it um, and a, a good foundation to, to build on. And I, I think that's important to bear in mind. Iraq is not hopeless. Um, it's, it's, it has um, a, a accomplished, decent people who are uh, willing to, to work hard towards these ends, and, it's, and our report tries to give some recommendations on how to support those goals. Perfect. All right. Well, on that more uplifting note, uh, uh, I think we will wrap up. It is 1242 in Washington, so we're at the end of our time, or just about. Uh, thank you very much, Shelley, for your time and insights, and thank you to our Policy Circle and Rand Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information on upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, you can visit rand.org or contact, contact us directly at policy underscore circle at rand.org. This concludes our call. Thank you, and have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.